Bhutan is calm and resolute. He's naively convinced that the miscarriage of justice will be detected, that the real murderer will be identified. When his wife asks, you know this is a hanging offense, don't you? He tells her from his jail cell, it is if you're guilty, I ain't got nothing to do with it. But Matan will learn that justice for a Somali man in Cardiff, Wales of the 1950s is as flawed and racist and inequitable as you'd expect. And novelist Nadifa Muhammad believes those flaws, indignities, and miscarriages of justice still endure. Nadifa Muhammad is the author of The Fortune Men. It's a Booker Prize finalist. And she joins us today from London. Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to talk to you. And to you, Kerry. Thank you for having me on. I found Matan's naivete and his belief in the virtue of truth and the criminal justice system pretty heartbreaking. I mean, it takes him a long time after he's arrested for murder to realize that no one really cares if he's treated justly or fairly. They just need a suspect. And I know you were working from the life of a real person. So was that naivete apparent in the details of his life as you researched it? Yes, I think it was. Because the way that he spoke to the police from the very first interviews shocked me. I was quite surprised at how... um, impatient he was with them how um rude in their perspective i'm sure he was and i think you could only do that if you thought that the system would be on your side so that these policemen were just a sort of inconvenience um a temporary inconvenience that you could brush away but he also had had experience of the criminal justice system, which had bolstered his confidence in it. So he'd been through the system for a few petty crimes. He'd been found guilty of larceny the year before when he stole money from the mosque. He'd also worked as an interpreter for other Somalis in court. So I think he felt very uh, experienced in the criminal justice system and able to navigate it quite easily. So it's not all naivete. It's... I know how this works, and I know how to work the system. What he doesn't seem to understand, and tell me whether this is true, I mean, it seems like the justice system that he has now been brought into for this very serious crime doesn't really care if they've got the right person. They think they've got the right person, but they're really not going Mm. to... Yeah, you tell me how how that looked in Wales of 1950s? I don't think it was that uncommon. You know, it's, it's made worse by the fact that he's a black foreigner, but it was pretty common for the police to, to allow these sorts of miscarriages of justice because they worked on a hunch. You know, they have a hunch that this is the guilty party, and then they would mas- massage or manage the evidence to, to prove that he's the guilty, or he or she is the guilty party. So as I, as I learned more about the death penalty and various other cases, uh, it was, there's lots of them that have doubts over the person's guilt. And Mahmoud, in a way, was a typical person. He was someone they thought was capable of this crime. And it didn't really matter if he'd committed this individual particular crime because he was a general threat. He was the kind of person who would do something like this. And for that reason, you had to be removed from society. And they thought that about all sorts of different people. 
but particularly foreigners, black men, uh, people who didn't speak English well. Um, but the funny thing is, is that other Somali men who had much stronger evidence against them, you know, many witnesses when they committed serious crimes such as murder, they did not hang. Hmm. So there was something about Mahmoud where despite the lack of evidence, they never found the cash which they said was stolen from the shop. They never found a murder weapon. They never found bloodied clothes. Um, they still wanted him dead. While the other Somalis, even though they were found guilty, they were generally sent to Broadmoor, which is a secure psychiatric hospital, uh, prison, in fact. And they were actually deported after a year back to Somaliland. So a year of deta uh, detention. And then they were free men, despite killing British white individuals. So there was something about their relationship to Matan, as they called him. The Cardiff police wanted him gone. I mean, the resonance with what you're describing, again, in 1950s Cardiff, Wales, with what has unfolded in the United States with so many of these cases, you know, where people have spent, mm. men of color, have spent decades mm. on death row, and then the case is reexamined or a journalist comes in and investigates, uh, only to find a series of events, much as you've described here with Matan, if he didn't do this, well, he did something. And that's good enough for us. Yeah. Gosh, you know, it's, it's got such long history. It's both in the American context and in the British, it was to do with the colonial sort of escapades and the things they could get away with doing. I don't know how much you're aware of Britain's own colonial history, but um, even for just resisting British authority, you could be executed. And many people were in India, across Africa. It was the norm. And if, you, if it was a much more domestic incident of a serious crime, then it's, it's a way of controlling the bodies of these people. I think that's what I've now come to understand, is that the most important thing is to control the body, whether that's through detention in prison, life imprisonment, or through execution, or through physical punishments. But that, that ownership of black bodies and colonized bodies is so important to the idea of order and justice in much of the Western world, whether that's France, whether that's Britain, whether that's the US. And there are so many shocking cases. You know, Britain stopped the death penalty in the 1960s. So thankfully, there haven't been too many in the recent past. But in, the, in America, it's still ongoing. And it's often the case where the most cursory examination of the evidence means that these people should never have been in jail in the first place, never mind on death row. And, you know, there's this real... I don't know what to call it, but when you think back to George Stinney Jr., who was executed as a 14-year-old, completely innocent of the crime he was committed, um, found guilty of, and he, he, he was sent to the electric chair at the age of 14. So it's just it's such a merciless system, and it's designed, you know, the particular murders or crimes um, that are meant to be, you know, um, at the heart of all of these um, death penalty cases is, I think... To the, it's not to the point. It's actually it's a much deeper desire to control and corral and intimidate and threaten a wider group of people. I mean, the other thing that seems to occur here with capital cases, with death penalty cases, is it is harder to, after the conviction, reopen, reexamine, mm. reinvestigate, which 
you know, it's like the system yeah. is just tilted toward hurtling towards the ultimate punishment, even though, as you note, there are doubts along the way. I mean, the system seems like once the sentence has been pronounced, we kind of wash our hands of it and turn away. Now, you know, the Innocence Project and other organizations have not permitted that, but that's still fairly rare. There are still, yes. yeah, execution. Go, go right ahead. What, what occurs to you about that? And, and Mahmoud, Mahmoud Matan was the very first historical miscarriage of justice overturned in Britain, and it took until 1998. And now they're still going over other cases. But in, in Britain in particular, people, people said that, you know, they prefer, they would have preferred someone to hang wrongly rather than for people to lose confidence in the criminal justice system. And that's been true in so many cases in Britain where people were left to languish in, in prison, you know, the Guildford Four, a lot of the Irish um, wrongfully accused who were, were convicted of being part of IRA bombing campaigns and were completely innocent Irish men and women. They were in jail for decades uh, sometimes and it was, it was incredibly difficult for the British state to admit that it was wrong. And I think one part of that is, and Mahmoud's wife, Laura, it took her from 1952 until 1998 to clear his name. And that's after multiple attempts. Do you think part of what you're describing happens in the UK, and I'm referencing happens here, is this this othering thing that human beings do, which is, well... I'd never, me and mine would never be in that situation. So they did something to lead themselves into a situation where now they face execution. I mean, do you think that's an element of this? Yes, I do think that's an element of it. And I think as well, when there's a terrifying crime, such as a murder or, you know, something like that, people are desperate to have the threat identified and taken away. And they'll allow themselves to believe anyone. <laughs> um, so if the police say that it must be this person, the evidence is pointing towards this person, people are very willing to believe that. And I think I've, I've had to counter that same instinct in myself. Because sometimes the crime is so horrible and shocking that even being associated with it means that you look guilty. You look like the kind of person who would do something like that. But that doesn't work in... Most of our societies, because wherever we are, we live in a hierarchy where some people are considered trustworthy, decent, good people, and others are considered dangerous, bad, immoral, um, wild, whatever it might be, whatever language is used around them. So our perception of who's capable of these sorts of crimes is completely distorted and very easy to manipulate. So I, I'm trying as much as I can to resist that urge of saying, oh, well, thank God the, the police have caught someone, you know, um, they, they, they're, they're, that I can now put that awful threat out of my right. mind. Because I think we all do right. that. I, I, think, um, I think we ought to describe the crime that is at the center of the novel and the, and the historical accuracy of, of the crime that, that you describe here. Um, it's a murder. Mm-hmm. It's the murder of a woman who was running a shop. What, what else can you tell us about yes. about why this was so, so frightening, I guess, to the shocking. community? Yeah. 
For many reasons. So Tiger Bay, where the novel is set and where the, the events took place, um, is the Docklands of Cardiff. And they've had a rep, like many Dockland areas around the world have had a rep, for violence, drunkenness, prostitution, drugs, um, being edgy in comparison to maybe the more decent, in inverted commas, parts of town. But it was also somewhere full of families, you know, children played on the streets, um, the murder victim's mom and she would take you know, lots of money and cash to the bank every day without being molested, without being harassed. So it was a weird mixture of safe and edgy. But one thing that was not common was um, murders of women, especially when it wasn't kind of a domestic in incident or anything like that. So in, in this case, I've changed the name in the novel, so I'll stick to the fictional name, Violet. Violet worked um, in a shop that she ran with her father until he passed away, and then she ran it by herself. But she lived there with her sister and her niece, and they all lived upstairs. So they closed the shop at eight o'clock, and um, dinner was ready. Her sister and niece were at the table already eating when Violet heard the door doorbell and decided to go and see if there were a couple more customers. And she saw a couple of customers, I think two young women who came in to buy headscarves or matches or something. And they left, and then the door rang again, and Violet walked out back into the shop, and silence. Nothing happened until 20 minutes later, a neighbour saw that the door was ajar, poked his head through the door, and saw Violet's dead body in the middle of the shop, in a corner of the shop to be exact. He ran away to call the police and went to the local police station. They came back and they were the ones to alert Violet's sister and niece to what had happened in the shop. So someone had murdered her in cold blood uh, with a knife or razor while her family were having lunch, uh, dinner next door and they did not hear a peep. From the minute that happened, there was a crowd outside. The newspapers were frantic about it. They described the killer as the silent killer. Um, someone said, I think it, um, the murder victim's sister and niece both said they saw a black man at the door and other people described seeing black men around the shop at the time. But at the same time, this was a street full of boarding houses for Cypriot sailors, Maltese, Somalis, Yemenis, West Indians. So it was a very multicultural street. And the murder victim and her family were Jewish. And there had been, this wasn't the kind of crime that would normally happen. I can't think, I've read lots of newspaper reports around that period of time, and I, I don't remember any crime like this. You know, what, what struck me is when you said that the murder of a woman was highly unusual, I think of today's true crime obsessions and, you know, the mm. writing about crime. I mean, the death of women in all shapes and sizes is a staple of, I know, of, and and, and really this is, is. Uh, this is unusual that this case revolved around a woman, and that the community would have seen that as highly unusual. Yes, and I think it was less unusual if it was a man killing a wife or a, a boyfriend killing a girlfriend. That was more typical, but this wasn't that. And the only uh, motive they could give the killer was robbery. And they assumed, uh, they could never really prove it, but they think that £100 was stolen from the shop and that would be the reason. So it was, it was a crime of, of, not, of no passion <laughs> um, rather than the crimes of passion that they were used to. And when white women were killed by their foreign boyfriends, I think they received very little sympathy. 
So when Mahmoud was arrested, another foreign man in jail at the same time in Cardiff was Ajit Singh, who was a Sikh man from India, who had shot dead his girlfriend, his Welsh girlfriend, outside of the hospital in Bridgend because she had dumped him at the request of her family. And there were, again, lots of witnesses. There was no doubt that he was guilty. But to my surprise, the jury in his case um, wanted there to... They found him guilty, but they wanted him to be reprieved from the death sentence. But the judge refused. Wow. Um, What does that reveal to you? It reveals what kind of women are valued and which ones are not. So in this instance, Violet um, was an upstanding, you know, blemishless uh, citizen of Cardiff. She had a shop. She worked hard. She was sober, caused no trouble for anyone, um, was a spinster, had a disability. She had scoliosis, so um, was seen as a disabled woman. And the brutality as well. She was she was murdered by having her throat slit. So all of it was just so gory and terrible. And again, the fact that the family were just there and unable to help her, I guess. Even nowadays, you'd think that's impossible. How can something like that happen with the family still in the house? But um, the women, the young women who dated black and Asian men, sex workers, runaways, all of these women were seen as much more disposable. And their, their murders were sort of, I think, seen as, a, as almost just punishment, that they'd, they'd gone beyond the bounds of society. And this is what happens when you do that. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to my Friday book show. We call it Big Books and Bold Ideas. And I'm in conversation with Nadifa Muhammad. Her new book is called The Fortune Men. It's a Booker Prize finalist uh, selection here. And you can hear our conversation developing. Nadifa took the story of, or facts and, and um, research about the case of a of a young man who lived in Cardiff, Wales. He was Somali. We'll talk a little bit about how many Somali sailors ended up in Cardiff, Wales, but what happens when he gets into the criminal justice system and the story that she has developed around his life and the life of the person that he's accused of murdering and this wonderful historical uh, detail about life in Cardiff, Wales in the 1950s and what the jurisprudence system was like. I, I want to talk about that, Nadifa. Um, Matan is born in Somalia. He came to Wales as a crew member on a ship, as did many Somali people. Do, do I have the details of that right? Almost. So he was born in British Somaliland. Ah because um, he was born in 19, is it 24, 25? It's quite vague when he was, Somalis didn't record their birth dates, so we could just have to approximate and they would generally make one up for when they needed papers. So he was born in the British Empire and Somaliland was, uh, what, what became Somalia later on was split between the British, the French, the Italians, and also a bit that was given to Ethiopia. So it was scattered in that way. And he grew up in Hadgeisa, the same, my hometown, my father's hometown. And he came from quite a well-off background. His, his father had a shop and a fleet of lorries. So they were definitely middle class, um, stable incomes, and with much less need to leave, unlike my father, who also became a sailor and had much more reason to leave because he was almost destitute in many points of his life. But Mahmoud could have stayed in Hargeisa and had an easy easy-ish life. But he decided not to and 
left Hargeisa in his early teens and then made his way all the way through Africa, from the Horn of Africa to South Africa, where he joined the British Merchant Navy, first of all as a pantry boy, because I'm guessing he was probably quite small and wasn't seen as a fit worker for the engine rooms. And then later on, he, he became a stoker, like my father, which involved throwing coal into the furnaces, which, which powered these steamships. And then that took him all over the world, America, Australia, Japan, you name it, until he settled with um, Laura in Cardiff. In, so he arrived in Cardiff, it's slightly unclear, in either 46 or 47. My father arrived in 47. And then pretty soon after that, Mahmoud met Laura, and they got married without telling anyone, uh, without her getting her family's permission. And then very quickly they had child after child after child. They had, they had three sons in quick succession. And he stopped going to sea. I, I'm going to get to how unusual, I guess, the, this marriage was in this time. But one of the pleasures of the novel is learning about the history of Somali sailors in Wales. And you... Oh, you have these great details, including how the streets and canals of Cardiff are so confusing that, quote, Somali sailors would wear the addresses of their lodging house on a board around their neck so that passersby could help navigate them. <laughs> I just, I, it's, yes, yes. I've got to tell you, from from this side of the ocean, to think mm. of this community, and I've been to Cardiff, Wales, to think mm. of this Mm-hmm. Very diverse community in Wales. Um, well, again, as I said, it's one of the pleasures of reading the novel, understanding this. How much did you know about the history of all of these different sailors that were coming from other places around the world to to live there and work there? Well, I had a head start because my father was one of them. And I wrote a novel about him, Black Mamba Boy, which was my first novel. So that's probably where I learned the baseline information. I didn't know, you know, when I first saw Mahmoud's face in a newspaper, it was in 2004, and I was wondering why on earth was he even in the country in 1952 to be in jail or to be executed. And then I realized my father had known him and that my father was one of those people who had been in the country since the 1940s. And that's when I started to learn. And it was it's a very strange story because... Somalis are nomadic, but I hadn't realised that they were globally nomadic as well. And it wasn't just Cardiff, it was London, Liverpool, New York, Portland, Oregon. They were scattered all over the world, never mind Aden, which was a huge hub for Somalis. And it all kind of came about because of the fact that Britain colonised northern Somalia, which was opposite Yemen, where Aden was. And Aden was a huge port for the British and serviced all of their ships going to India and the Far East and Australia. So just by chance, really, the Somali men, young men who were looking for work could hop across the Red Sea and join the British Merchant Navy and earn much more than they would ever earn in Somalia, Somaliland as it was. Um, So in terms of numbers, in Cardiff in the 40s, I would say there's probably about 2,000 of them. But they were a constantly replenishing group. So when someone left, another person would come and take their place. And these guys generally only spoke Somali. They were illiterate. They didn't know anything about Cardiff. They didn't know anything about most of the places that they were turning up at. It was just completely gutsy, youthful um, sort of wanderlust. They, they didn't care. You know, the horizon was the, was the horizon. He just kept going. And Mahmoud was unusual in the fact that he stopped. 
My father carried on at sea, but Mahmoud stopped going to sea just after three years and decided that he wanted to establish a life in, in Cardiff. Yeah, the optimism of that, right? That it'll work yeah. out. Mm. Yes, and the romant- romanticism as well. I think he, he really did love Laura and his children in a way that distorted his good sense, maybe, because one way of keeping on the good side of the authorities was to never be in one place for a long time. There's a lovely um, scene or conversation in Beloved by Toni Morrison where, um, what's his name, the male character? Uh, I'll find it. Seth's partner or former partner um, turns up and he says, if you don't keep moving, someone will find a way of chaining you down. Mm. And I think that was, that was still true in the 1940s, 50s. So Paul D. Paul D is his name. Got it. So when your father joined, you said the British Merchant Marine. Was that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, was it, and, and he continued to, to go to sea, but was it his intention to leave his homeland behind? And did he, you know, for, for permanently? And did he talk about... For my father? Yeah. No. So he'd already been wandering around. He, he was born in Somaliland into a very nomadic family. They, they still moved with their livestock, like, many, like most Somalis did, and many of them still do. Um, but then his mother went to work in Aden in a coffee factory. And then they came back to, to Africa and then were in Djibouti and finally settled in the borderlands between Eritrea and Sudan. So he, he left, first of all, he said, because he'd been wiped out by locusts two years running on his farm in Eritrea, so had no money. And his mother gave him all that she had, uh, which I think was 19 pounds or something. And he used that to travel up to Egypt um, and join the merchant navy, the British merchant navy, navy. And he only intended to do one or two journeys. And his goal was to go back to Eritrea, to his village, and have enough money to re-establish himself as a shopkeeper and to buy a racing camel. Because I think that was the young man's <laughs> way of like showing off. You didn't buy a racing car, you bought a racing camel. <laughs> so he intended to be back very quickly, but never, never went back wow. for, for it to live permanently. So how, how open was he about that life and that decision and what that meant to the family, to, you know, his parents and then um, the kid, the children he would have? Yeah. I think being a nomad, being born on the move, really formed the way that he understood life and home and what is possible and what is necessary. So his mother was alive, his father had disappeared and then died when he was about 10 or 11 years old. So he was just connected to his mother in this very loose but intense way where, you know, she was his role model in many ways and she was very mobile. She kept moving around. And I think as soon as my father joined the the Navy, and it it was a very difficult job physically, it was incredibly hard to, to work at those furnaces for four hours at a time. And Somalis did particular routes, Somalis, Yemenis and Bengalis did particular routes because the British sailors refused to do them when they were passing through the equator. It was just too hot. Um, and so they brought, brought in these colonial laborers who were cheaper as well. And, you know, the, the mentality was that they would never complain and that they, could, they would put up with anything. So it was incredibly physically demanding. And then, um, but the thing that he loved, my father loved, was... 
he felt like a citizen of the world. He always called himself a citizen of the world. And he ended up going to, I think, a hundred, more than a hundred countries <laughs> oh across the globe. Wow. And he spoke Italian and Arabic and Somali and a bit of Hebrew and Hindi from when he was little. You know, I think two or three Eritrean languages. So he loved that. That was his identity. Um, so he was a sailor for 40 years and only gave up when I think he, he had to. And by that time, the whole industry was really on its last legs, but he loved it. It was a massive part of his identity. Um, have you inherited your dad's wanderlust, would you say? Yes. Have you? Yeah. I don't. Tra I travel, I, I do, I think, yeah, I travel in a similar way to him. I travel a lot for work as a writer, either for research or to do book events or book festivals. So it's taken me to funny places, um, Colombia, Peru, places that I didn't expect to go as, as, as my work. Um, but I love it. And I, as I get older, I'm starting to dislike airports more and more. And especially with COVID now, it's a much more complicated process. But I love it. I love waking up somewhere new, you know, a different climate, different vista. Yeah, it's definitely in my blood. I love the way you've described that. That's my favorite day on, a, on an exploration, on an expedition. It's that first day. Everything smells different. You've woken up and you just know everything is different and transformed. And the whole adventure is before you, right? Yes. Yeah. And you get to know these places or have very intense experiences sometimes in a place that you'll never return to. Right. I went to um, the British Council, took me to this tiny island off the coast of Colombia called Rodriguez. Huh. And it was an island where British pilots used to bury their gold. I think Captain Morgan was a famous pirate who wow. buried his treasure there. And it just felt so far away from anything. But yet it was an English-speaking island, and the people there were Caribbean, black Caribbeans, who felt they had nothing to do with Colombia. Um, so it felt strangely familiar, despite it being so far away. But uh, I've got so many experiences like that, things and places and combinations of people that you would never put together Irvin Welsh joined us later on in Cartagena. So it was just, just fantastic. It's a real luck. These are the really lovely aspects of being a writer. Sometimes it's quite hard. Yes, because we, I think we tend to think of, you know, the work that you're doing is pretty solitary and um, four walls enclose you in your writing room and yeah. you travel in your mind. Yes, that's true. And that goes on for years sometimes. And you can become very isolated because the way I work, I can't work in libraries or shared spaces. I have to be on my own. And, you know, with the second novel in particular, I locked myself in and said I can't go out to my friends and just w went at it. And it was very, it was a, a miserable <laughs> experience. <And laughs> thankfully, The Fortune Men was not like that. And it was collaborative. Um, I, I went to Cardiff a lot. I went around London. I went to Somaliland to do research. And there were people who were invested in this story and wanted it to be told. And it was very painless. You know, it was in my mind for a really long time, about 17 years, mm. or it must have been 11 years when I started writing. And when I sat down, the book was just ready. It was just completely painless. You're listening to my conversation on this Friday book show with Nadifa Muhammad. Her new book is called The Fortune Men. It's a Booker Prize finalist. Highly recommend you'll hear about it on the thread. Um, I don't want to miss, uh, we, we discussed this a little bit. We alluded to the unusual or maybe not so much in 
Wales in the 50s. But the nature of Matan's marriage to Laura, she's Welsh, is was that as unusual of a story in in that time as I might expect a Somali man from somewhere else marrying a Welsh woman, raising children? It wasn't completely rare. So I, don't, I couldn't say it exactly, but I'd say out of the Somali sailors who were in Cardiff... Mm, 20% would have married local women, local Welsh women mm. or women that they'd met in Cardiff, non-Somali women. And then the others probably would have gone back to get married to Somali women in their towns or wherever they came from. Um, so Mahmoud wasn't unique by far. And often those Welsh women, or they could be English women, Scottish women, Irish women, um, who had gone to live in Cardiff, they would then move into the immigrant quarter. Mm, they, some okay. of them converted to Islam, some of them spoke Arabic, or, you know, they, they became part of that immigrant community. While Laura didn't, she, she was very uh, set in, in living her life with her family outside of Tiger Bay. So Mahmoud eventually moved to Adamsdown, um, which is the neighborhood next to Tiger Bay, very white, late, uh, you know, white working class neighborhood, and he lived on the same street as her, which was the street behind the prison. Mm-hmm. And their their relationship was unusual in other ways. So it was typically um, a case, the case where if a white woman married a foreign man, and that could be Maltese, you know, never mind African, mm. if they married a foreigner, they would be disowned by their families. And so that would be at that. They would have no recourse to their families. But Laura's family were not like that. And they even let Mahmoud move in with them. And that is very unusual. And Mahmoud's children, Laura and Mahmoud's children, all lived with their grandparents. Um, so there was something, something strange there, which I never found a good explanation of, because this, was, this street would have been very hostile to a mixed-race cu- uh, couple, and they were hostile. But somehow both Laura and Mahmoud just resisted it and mm. just did things their own way. I think she must have also had a very forceful personality to say to her family, this is what I'm doing right. and you're going to let me. Right. Were you in touch with their children or, the, or their descendants? Sadly, they'd all passed away. Mm. So all three sons had died by the time I started work on the novel. Mm. The portrait of their marriage that you've... Drawn And again, you're working from research, but you're also writing, you're using your imagination. It's so, it's affectionate, it's loving, it's disillusioning. I mean, you can see Laura, as with all long marriages, I think, you know, you come to accept the things you either didn't want to see or... You know, the, it's part of loving someone else for a long time. And you've you've blended all of that into their exchanges and their, yeah. you know, their love, which, which yes. is really compelling. Well, it was very lucky in a way for me as a writer that um, during the appeals process, Laura did lots of interviews with newspapers and the radio and TV about Mahmoud and about their love and about the injustice against him. So despite not being able to meet her, there's a lot of 
resources that you can access where she talks about their relationship. And actually, the most shocking uh, document or information came from the Criminal Cases Review Commission itself. So the the, the particular... Um, this was all of the information that was gathered to um, take Mahmoud's case to appeal in the late 90s. And then also, as part of that, there was the compensation process, which was long and intensive and quite cruel because they had to explain exactly what had happened to them after Mahmoud's execution. And that was the really shocking part. Their life was just destroyed. Their lives were destroyed. Laura suffered with mental health issues afterwards. The children were anemic and um, even, you know, she tried to put them up for adoption, I think, or put them in care and they wouldn't accept them because of the stigma that the children had about being the, the children of an executed man. Um, they were harassed and beaten by the neighbours. It was just awful. And then, you know, the, the government, the British authorities wanted, they calculated precisely how much Mahmoud would have earned if he'd carried on in the jobs that he'd had as, um, you know, into old age. And that's what, and they, <laughs> that, you know, it's so shocking. They also then calculated his earnings and then they took the money that it cost them to keep him in prison Oh. As if it, as if he was you know in a hostel or a hotel. So cruel. So they took the cost of that off the off the compensation. Yeah. yeah. And and they had to wait years before the government paid the compensation. Uh, how detailed was the information that you had access to about the actual execution? Mm, in the in the national archives, actually. There's little on the there's the prep for the execution mm-hmm. and you know saying that the the church uh, chap uh, the prison chaplain has to come back from his holiday in the Isle of Wight or somewhere because he he's an, he's obliged to be at an execution even if it's a Muslim prisoner who's being executed um, and then there's all this weird conv- you know conversation about the suit that Mahmoud will be wearing right. and they had to get it from the pawnbrokers and the pawnbroker didn't want to give it back because he then wouldn't be able to sell it. It's really awful. It is. But in terms of the actual morning of the execution, there's nothing there. But I was able to get some information from a Welsh language book that was published by a policeman who said that his uncle was one of the wardens in the prison the morning that Mahmoud was executed. I mean, it, it is so beautifully and poignantly rendered I guess I wonder how you prepare to write a scene like that when you have lived with the character and his family and his life. Oh, it was hard. It was so hard. Because you think, as a writer, you know, someone... You think you can change it somehow. And if it was more of... You know, I didn't have the option of changing it. I couldn't make it a happy story when it wasn't a happy story. So you're following him. And you're the only person who cared for him, who's able to follow him in that way and to know what happened to him. Laura couldn't be there. She was, she was outside of the prison thinking that she was going to visit him that day. And, you know, in this Welsh language book, they describe his last words as this kind of gobbledygook. Um, but, it, you know, I was able to work out that he was actually praying. Mm-hmm. He was doing his declaration of faith in Arabic. And that that was really hard to absorb because... You know, they think they. I know. I can imagine easily how they treated him and how they looked at him as this other. And yet, I don't see him as an other. I, 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 he's so familiar to me, so intimate. 
and I know exactly what he's doing and why. So when you know that the writing of that scene is coming, I mean, I, I assume that, you know, this is something that's, that's hovering there. How do you emotionally prepare mm. to, to write that, e- even if you're not at the moment of the writing? What are you doing to prepare for it? I think there's normally a pause when you're writing a scene like that. And I wrote a similar traumatic scene in Black Mamba Boy. And there's always a pause where you kind of gather yourself again. And then you just go. And it's those scenes are normally quite fast to write, maybe because you don't want to stay with them for too long or you don't... It just has to come out on this kind of shot of adrenaline. But I was sobbing in this particular case when I was writing Mahmoud's last moments I was sobbing you know I I have to think also of you living with the knowledge of this cruelty I mean obviously it's it's there still I, I mean there's no way to really put that away is there no and I don't know if I want to I think all of the relationships you build as a writer with characters, and I tend to write stories based in some way on real stories, real histories, real people. And I'd never want to say goodbye as a final goodbye. Uh, with Mahmoud in particular as well, because it's unfinished business. Yes, you know, he's been, his, his conviction was quashed, but the person that did the murder, who committed the murder, was never officially named or found. So the murder victim's justice is still, you know, something that hangs over me. I, I feel like there's two people here who were harmed, who were, who didn't have justice. So if I could, if I can do anything in helping that process along, I will do that. And I don't think that will have a deadline. Mm-hmm. That's always something that will be on my mind. Do you still have family in Somalia? And I wonder if you travel there very often. I do. So, so as I was saying before, it was when Mahmoud was born and my father was born, it was British Somaliland because it was part of the British Empire. And then thankfully it stopped being part of any empires in 1960 when it joined with Italian Somalia to become Somalia, the Republic of Somalia. And then because of the Civil War, the North, which was formerly British Somaliland, broke away. So now when I return, I return to this unrecognized republic called Somaliland and to my hometown, Hargeisa, which is the capital of that republic. So I go back a lot. Um, Normally every other year, I I take part in a book festival that's been going on for more than 10 years there. I get to know the city each time a little bit more. It's changed completely from when I was born. It was a really small town then of maybe 100,000 people, maybe even 50,000 people. And now it's more than a million strong, and it's constantly changing. And what I love to see as well is that it's becoming more cosmopolitan, multicultural, I'm starting to see more people from the rest of Africa, Kenyans, Ugandans, um, from India, Bangladesh, uh, all over the Arab world. You've got lots of Syrian refugees, uh, Iraqis, Yemeni refugees. So you're starting to get the feeling that it's becoming a real city mm-hmm. rather than a quite quiet town. It, do you follow the politics? You probably do. I try not to anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Why? It's a headache. It's a real headache. There's a lot that's good about Somaliland. It's safe. It's very stable. They have democratic elections. 
um, women have some freedoms. Um, but there's a lot that I would change if I had power to change that. But it's a headache. I think I like to get involved in the cultural life and the artistic life. There's lots of people doing really amazing things. But politics-wise, it's still a kind of cabal of old men who control everything and the clans around them. And it can sometimes feel as if there's just no movement or no positive movement. Uh, that's what I was going to ask you. If you, how you adjust when you're there with um, the restrictions that women still confront in a city like that. Yeah, it's something I think about. I have to wear different clothes. You know, I, I dress, you know, I don't like the word modest, but what would be described as modest in London, it's cold, so you're, you're forced to dress modestly <laughs> anyway. Um, but in Somalia, the clothes I, I would wear, I'm, today I'm wearing a long hoodie and a pair of uh, tracksuit bottoms. Not, <laughs> not glamorous, but I couldn't wear that in Somaliland. And recently I saw footage of a young woman who just wore loose trousers, baggy trousers in the market, and she had to be walked out of the market by the police because of the mob around her that were abusing her. So that stuff makes me, that kind of mentality, which is so misogynistic, so controlling, so, you know, it's threatening. It's definitely threatening because you know that if you don't abide by it, if I don't wear the clothes that I have to wear, then the safety that you feel you have will quickly disappear. And it's not governmental. It's not like Saudi Arabia where there's a, a uniform that's a, you know, that the police will arrest you for not wearing. It's, it's all the society. Really? <laughs> you know, it's okay. The, it's the people. I didn't understand <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. I, these, are, these are societal yeah. norms that are basically enforced yes. by your neighbors. Yeah. And my gosh. Yes. Yeah. It's not the, it's not the law. It's not the law. And in, in many ways, that's also the, the, one of the good things about Somaliland is that it's the social norms that have created this peace. People decided that they had enough of the conflict and that they would forgive each other, you know, for the violence of the civil war and that they would agree to carry on with their lives and form a new state. But that same social cohesion, I guess it is, um, becomes social control in other contexts, especially when it comes to women and girls. You know, I don't go to Somalia. Somalia is the place where people, like Somalia meaning Mogadishu, the Republic of Somalia, which has different challenges. But I think culturally has always been more liberal than the North, uh, which is now Somaliland. So, you know, it's interesting talking to people from Mogadishu and what they think is normal and what people in Somaliland think is normal. And Hargeisa, my hometown, has always had religious roots. So it was established in the 19th century by religious orders, Sufi religious orders. So it's interesting how even within Somalia, the culture varies. And then since the civil war, um, across the board, including Mogadishu, across, you know, Somalia, Somaliland, everyone has become much more conservative than they probably ever have been in the past. I was going to ask you if there is any kind of a women's movement does that exist underground? Mm. It's not, it doesn't have to even be underground. <laughs> the problem is, 
women do a lot in both Somalia and Somaliland. They're actually the, partly the economic foundation of both countries. You know, women in the marketplaces, women who have big businesses. Um, Somali women tend to be very independent. So even if they are married, they often have their own separate interests. So it's not, it's, it's a strange situation. What hasn't happened is that Somali women have not translated the economic or other forms of power into political power. That's the thing that's really lacking. Um, so in terms of a women's movement, it's, it's complicated by the fact that lots of women themselves believe that certain restrictions are necessary Islamically. And across the Muslim world, people's understanding of those restrictions completely varies. And Somaliland is much more conservative than lots of other Muslim countries, Morocco, Turkey, Malaysia, wherever you want to say. So someone in, no one in Morocco or Turkey or Malaysia would be harassed for wearing trousers, especially, you know, if, if it's accompanied with a long shirt and a hijab. That's completely ordinary clothing for most Muslim women. But somehow in Somalia, it's not. And lots of Somali women would be also, you know, in agreement that that's not appropriate wear, you know, cl clothing. So that's, it's, you have to be very careful about um, suggesting in Somaliland that it's, 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 it's <laughs> trying, to, trying to define what I mean. So people are very keen on having an Islamic democracy. So some, cert some civil liberties they expect to have, such as the right to vote and other things, the right to property, etc., etc. Et but the idea of civil liberties recedes if they're ever seen as in competition or in um, rejection of Islam. But that rejection or competition is, is particular. It's a particular perspective that's not shared across the Muslim world. Mm-hmm. I have one last question that I that I ask some of the authors um, that I talk to. Is there a book on your bookshelves that you know is particularly well loved? I mean, maybe it's one that you reach for to inspire a day of writing, or you reach for after a tough day. Um, one that is just you know it's dog-eared. It's one that you love to pull off the shelf. It could be anything by Toni Morrison. <laughs> I could pull any of her books off the bookshelf and it would give me... And I think as well, we talked before about that kind of gathering storm. And sometimes reading someone like her can be that... It can be the thing that creates that lightning. And it could be just a page or two of her writing. But something, you just see how magnificent these words put together can be. And that can, that can free your writing it can free your own imagination and and make you fall in love again with that whole process nadifa muhammad's new novel is titled the fortune men and she joined us from london diva i have loved the conversation thank you for the generosity of your time me too carrie thank you for having me and hello minnesota <laughs> <laughs>